Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. ticklish business i'm Kristen, joined as always by the lovely and amazing emily edwards emily how are you i am so good this one's gonna be fun it is going to be fun because we have not one but two guests on this episode as we celebrate warner 100 by talking about the ultimate warner brothers movie 1942's casablanca yes we have been doing this show for so long and we have never talked about the most famous classic film well one of them of all time. Because of that, we have two fantastic guests. We actually have one of our lovely and amazing patrons joining us as a guest this week, Andrew Hoppy. Andrew, how are you? I am lovely. Thank you for asking. I'm very happy to be here, might I say. Longtime fan of the podcast, and I'm really happy to be able to partake, not just in the show itself, but in what will be such a great episode, such an important episode. You set the bar very high. Thank you so much, because I got to live up to that. We and Emily are just like, ooh, we got to make this epic. And also joining us is the author of one of the new books about the Warner Brothers, appropriately titled The Warner Brothers, author Chris Yogurst. Chris, how are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you both, Andrew and Chris, for wanting to talk about Casablanca with us. It's a movie that needs no introduction. It's been talked about to death, but we're going to try to find something new with it. But before we talk about Casablanca, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should. We do additional bonus pods, including double features, looking at remakes based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. Emily and I are also embarking on our new mini series. But have you read the book? Not necessarily us reading the book, but we are talking about literary adaptations. We're going to be starting by looking at three very different versions of the classic Russian novel Anna Karenina. So we're going to be looking at Garbo. We're going to be looking at Vivian Lee and Kieran Knightley in three very different versions. That's going to be fun. We also have our recent episode of Double Features looking at the dueling versions of The Women. Spoiler alert, the 2008 version was deemed not the worst of all three of those movies. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts and, like Andrew here, let you guest on an episode. That is at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget, both Emily and I are authors. We have books. We'd like to write more books. You can order our books wherever you get them. And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha Ellis and Terrence Hiltz featuring your favorite stars, including our popular Makoko mugs. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. So let's talk about Warner Brothers really briefly, because Chris, you wrote a book about this huge studio. It's turning 100. We're talking about Casablanca. When you're dealing with something like 100 years of history, where do you start the book actually started as I wanted to do a biography of Harry Warner. 
because I just feel like Jack Warner lived the longest or the latest into our history, and he came the Warner brother. So I wanted to refocus the rest of the brothers into this narrative. Even though Warner Brothers is turning 100, my book covers the family, so it pretty much ends in the late 70s. But I really wanted to focus on the family's history and the four brothers specifically, because especially a film like Casablanca and true of so many Warner Brothers movies, what the brothers stood for, what they talked about in public, things that really drove them really trickled down into the movies that the studio made in a big way, whether they were involved in them or not. All the ripped from the headlines movies, all the topical political movies, all the wartime movies is not just a Warner Brothers film, but it's a film that represents the brothers in a big way. In your research and looking at all of the movies that they did, how does Casablanca fit into, is it the definitive Warner Brothers movie when you look at the entire 100 years? That's such a tricky question because they have so many good movies. There's a part of me that wants to be like, yes and no, and then equivocate for three hours. But there's another part of me that's like, it has to be. It absolutely is, right? It's a movie that even people who don't know old movies have at least heard of Casablanca. It's one of these movies that's had so many ripple effects. People have heard quotes from the movie that have never seen the movie, right? There's not a political conversation during election season where somebody doesn't say, oh, I'm shocked, shocked to hear that. Might not even know where that's coming from. It is such a quintessential Warner Brothers movie. It has become so big and lasted so long that it is also, as Noah Eisenberg has pointed out in his book on Casablanca, right? It's really taken on a life of its own. This is a movie that when I was taking film classes in college, a lot of people consider this the definitive classic film, the definitive example of old Hollywood. I don't know. I tend to consider Mildred Pierce a better example of quintessential old Hollywood, there's debate. But regardless, it's often vaunted as the example of classic filmdom. That ends up maybe giving the movie a bad rap or at least a bar that it can't always cross because it's just so beloved. It's become so formulaic. They were saying in the screenwriting phase, one of the Epstein brothers, I think it was, said that it had more corn in it but the corn always sells. That's a huge thing that you're both simultaneously appreciating and mocking this movie. I want to give the plot real quick before we start breaking it down. Most people should know the plot of Casablanca, but if you don't, it's about expatriate American cafe owner Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart, who is happy to, quote, not stick his neck out for anybody, just wants to waste his time in Casablanca, until his ex-love, Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, comes to town, and a lot of stuff happens involving mysterious letters of transit. I've seen this several times, I think most of us have, but I want to get Andrew, when we talked about what episodes you were interested in, you really wanted to talk about Casablanca. What is the allure for you about this film? Let me start by explaining how I discovered this film. I first saw this film when I was about nine years old. It wasn't the first sort of like old film that I had seen. It was the first classic Hollywood film that I'd seen. I was instantly smitten with it. It was this incredible epic story of good versus evil in the Second World War. I loved it so much. I went as Rick Blaine for Halloween that year. I made my mom find me a white smoking jacket that would fit my tiny child body. I didn't think about it quite like this in those sense, but it's this film as 
a commentary on we now see as history, but sort of the current events of its day intrigued me, but also continue to intrigue me. Many of the things that the film mythologizes about the Second World War, many of the things that it, well, to be blunt, sanitizes about the Second World War. But at the same time, the way that the film has this incredibly powerful message about compassion, about, about freedom, about resistance to tyranny, about what it means to be the good guy when it's very hard to be the good guy. I always think of, just gave the plot synopsis, but you know, towards the end of the film where Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart are sitting there, Humphrey Bogart's Rick says to him, here's what we'll do. You release Elsa. I will give you these, the letters of transit so that you can take Paul Henrod's character, Victor Laszlo, and take him for a much more serious charge. They get to the airport, the airstrip. What does he do? He gives her up and he gives up Victor and lets them go away, kills the Nazi. And then he and Louie run off to join the resistance. It's this act of sacrifice. He gives up it- the thing that he wants for the thing that is better for everybody, for the world. Emily, you always come into these usually having seen them for the first time. Was this Mm -hmm. a first time watch for you? No, 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 no. I went to a school, a college with a film program. So I did a lot of bit learning on the really, really big ones. So this blessedly was not the first time I had seen Casablanca. I had always gotten the messaging from the way people react to the movie that you're supposed to really, really love the love story. And watching it now as an old married I was like, oh, the actual politics are so much more interesting to me than this sweeping love story of adults realizing you don't always get to be with the person that you love. It's a hard message and countless movies have been made about that message of you have to let love go. You have to understand that the sacrifice of your heart and your heart's desire and in the lens of World War II and Nazi occupation is an incredibly beautiful story. But to me, it was really interesting watching the politics and machinations of the paperwork aspect of this, where probably the first couple of times that I watched it, I not being a super, super film buff, when I was in college, I had a 10-inch CRT TV in my tiny little apartment. And that's what I first watched Casablanca on. And I had no idea what was going on because I was watching it on a 10-inch CRT TV. So now that I'm watching it on like a 60-inch television, I can actually tell what's happening. I can hear what's happening. And it is a fantastically nuanced political movie and so much funnier than I ever thought it was, which I think is super important when you're making an anti-Nazi movie while the Nazis are still actively occupying Europe. Knowing much more that I do now about the Second World War and the Nazi machinations and mechanisms of power and things like that, I got to put the love story on the back burner and get more into the politics of it. And it was fascinating and really, really moving to know that many of the extras were actually fleeing the Nazis while they were filming this movie. This was an incredibly emotional movie for the people making it in a way that I had not really understood when I first watched it in my teens and early 20s. You bring up a great point. We often talk now about the appropriate amount of time that a movie has to be separated from the events in order to be made. We don't want movies to be made too quickly while we're living things. People tried to capitalize really quickly by making television shows about COVID and they just didn't work because we didn't know what was going on. We don't want things as they're happening. 
But then to watch something like Casablanca, it was made in 42 as the war is happening. That's a surprising move for us watching it in 2023 because movies take so long now that you don't get that timeliness element of it. It is this weird bit of dissociation while you're watching it to realize that as these characters are talking and Nazis and you're hearing the word concentration camp and you're like, oh, actually all of that is still happening and it would be at least another three years before the war would end and camps would be liberated. So there is this disjointing of the history that I always find really fascinating when I watch it because they're actually living it and this movie is supposed to be almost like a period piece which we don't get today. And it's one thing I think about audiences watching modern films that we don't really see films talk about history as it's happening. We get them years after with the benefit of hindsight and trying to put things in context. It's like what we're seeing now with the interesting nostalgia boom we have of look back at this weird thing, like Beanie Babies. Remember Beanie Babies? Let's talk about how... Beanie Babies actually were corrupt, and we don't really care about it anymore. The way we look at history and film then versus today never ceases to fascinate me. What's unique about not just Casablanca, but all these World War II wartime movies, it's important to point out that there was the Office of War Information. They created the Bureau of Motion Pictures. The government was really nudging and really strongly encouraging Hollywood to make wartime movies And they actually had as much jurisdiction on a lot of these movies as the production code had. They were approving and saying yay or nay on certain things. The big historic question that was always thrown around from the government to Hollywood was, will this picture help win the war? Is it good for the morale back home? Is it good for soldiers to see overseas? That's one of the reasons why a movie like Casablanca is so much of the moment And like you said, it's everything that people were going through in that movie, people were going through in the real world at the exact same time, which is something that adds to its legend. It's this made up movie, but at the same time, it is so very real. It is so harsh to realize that this was being made and released months after Pearl Harbor happened and America got roped into the war after years of isolationism for Rick to walk around going, I don't stick my neck out for anybody. And then to basically be proved wrong that that is a terrible position to take. It's both incredibly harsh against the government, but also a wonderful way to soothe the feelings of the people who now have sons in the war, brothers in the war, daughters serving as nurses overseas to say, no, you are supposed to stick your neck out for other people. This is humanity. This is the right thing to do. It's really fascinating for me that it's both a criticism against the government and a a salve for hurt nerves and terrified people who are now being thrust into a war. That's why a lot of people say that Casablanca is really just a metaphor movie for American intervention in the war with Rick representing America. I don't know if I like that reading per se. It's not really as interesting, but I can see it. It's one of those cases where multiple things can be true at once. This can absolutely be an allegory of America's role, or rather non-role, in the beginning of the Second World War, as well as being this incredibly moving love story and morality story about the place of the individual in history. But at the same time, this is a very important note to make when we're talking about the film as being timely. 
it's true that in many ways the film is a response to what is going on in Nazi-occupied Europe at that time. But at the same time, it is important to bear in mind that when this film was being made, many of the things that we think of as being the absolutely exemplary aspects of Nazi brutality had not actually occurred yet. When they talk about concentration camps in this film, the film was being made, Treblinka had not actually been set up yet. Most of the death camps were only in the process of being physically built. A concentration camp meant something more like Dachau. It meant something more like in the Soviet Union, a gulag, which is to say that the film in and of itself, I don't want to downplay anything. I mean, after all, you know, Michael Curtiz lost multiple siblings at Auschwitz. We do have to bear in mind that the picture of the Second World War that it's giving us, the Second World War as the film understands it, and that the film is engaging with, is not the Second World War that we know. The best example of this in some ways, just to speaking almost as a metaphor, is the scene with Le Marseillais. The Germans come in, they start singing their anthem, but they're not singing either of the official German national anthems. They're not singing a Nazi anthem. They're singing Die Wacht am Rhein, which is this old patriotic song from the 19th century, and that was very popular in the First World War, but was not completely forgotten, but kind of largely disregarded by the Nazi regime as like being too associated with the Kaiser. Then they come in with the Marseillaise, and then you have the whole crowd, all of these people, incredible multinational crowd, this symbol of the world standing up to Nazi tyranny, drowning them out. When the reality of Nazi-occupied Europe, especially at that time, was that collaboration was incredibly widespread. The Vichy regime, and Robert Paxton in his fabulous book on Vichy, France has written about this extensively, for the first two years of its existence, enjoyed pretty broad popular support among most French people. Obviously, the people that we're seeing in Rick's cafe are refugees. These are the kinds of people who would have every reason to oppose the Nazi regime as vocally, literally, as they are. But at the same time, it gives the viewer the impression that there is this united front against Nazism when the reality is there wasn't. Since you, know, you really see the film as a piece of propaganda, it is very much going back to what you were saying, Chris. This is a film that is where they're asking themselves, will this help us win the war? Is this sending the right message? And, and in order to do that, they have to tell a version of the Second World War. It's one that I think is totally morally in the right, unquestionably morally in the right. But at the end of the day, it is a propagandized understanding. Right. You have to yeah. remember that when watching this film. It was in a lot of ways. And then you made a good point, too, of how divided the country was, the world was on the rise of fascism, even you know, my last book that I wrote, Hollywood Hates Hitler, I do a lot of diving into what attitudes were in the United States about the rise of fascism. And it was not, as some history books would like to tell us, we were all against it. It's like, no, a lot of people were either equivocating on it or for it. And the U.S. Senate actually went after Hollywood for making anti-Nazi movies. That all changed really fast after Pearl Harbor. And then we had in almost every wartime movie on a certain level can be read as a propaganda film just because that was the charge given to the industry. Now, of course, artists are going to create within that charge, right? And they make some really great stuff. That's why all the wartime movies aren't equal. Looking at the simultaneous history of this movie, as well as what the movie is saying and who knows what and when we knew it in real time, I'm really glad you made those points, Andrew. Those are also really helpful ways to understand the film and Hollywood at the time. It's so interesting to also point out the fact that obviously this movie has spin because they've got absolutely no comment on France's colonial occupation of Morocco during the entire movie. I always look at things through a colonial lens. In the 50s, we start to get some hints of anti-colonial 
commentary in movies. But this, absolutely none. They have every right to be in Morocco. Moroccans barely show up in the movie unless they're wearing a fez and doing what the French tell them to do. And that's it. That's the only time you even acknowledge that you're actually in Africa, aside from the fact that you have to stop over there in order to get to Portugal and carry on. We do forget. It's easy to get lost in the narrative and forget the place that it's supposed to be. But that also lends us some of the humor, Chris, you were talking about, one of you were talking about earlier, Rick, right? I came here for the waters, you know, (laughs) I was misinformed. It adds to some of that. The musical sequence in this movie allegedly was a very emotional sequence to film because they had cast a lot of Eastern European refugee character actors. And it's so beautifully filmed. I love the way that the camera puts itself on people, especially Madeline LeBeau's character, who is just singing with such passion. It's such a great sequence that Bob Fosse would emulate in Cabaret in the 1980s in a very different way that is far more World War II by that point because he's making it in the 80s, late 70s. That's something that Curtiz did really well with a lot of his movies. I don't know, Chris, if you can talk about this, but Warner, as far as I know, had always sold itself on not being afraid to be political. They talked about crime in the 1930s and Cagney movies and talking about people coming back from war and not being able to get jobs. They were the studio that, unlike MGM, that could play with the fantasy. They were gritty, right? They could talk about this. That's what works to the movie's advantage. There were a lot of Casablanca ripoffs that came out in the wake of this. I think of something like the other Bogart movie, To Have and Have Not, which I've talked about. Shameless plug for my book. It's in my book. If you watch To Have and Have Not, you just realize just how much they kicked out Hemingway and just redid Casablanca. And Howard Hawks is great, but Curtiz especially is this real secret ingredient to this movie that is able to give you the Hollywood whiz-bang with that element of political activism to it. The fact that Victor Laszlo, who always gets the short end of the stick when we talk about this movie because he's the guy that you don't want to get Ilsa in the end, he really is this figure of progress and heroism. He's been doing the work. The man was in a concentration camp. He actually has suffered and endured as far as we know. He's just a really good person at the end of the day. You really feel for Paul Henri. And I know that his daughter, Monica, who is still with us, has talked openly about Paul Henri not really getting his due and often just being stuck playing second banana characters or the guy that lights the cigarettes and now Voyager. But there are so many little individual characters that really do make this movie the real politically charged piece of, yes, propaganda, but also does give it this point of view that you really need to elevate it above just being a formulaic, corny romance film. Absolutely. When I'm thinking back to Chris, and something you said earlier about seeing the movie at a certain age and then learning more, living more, and then seeing it again. Emily, you said that. The older you get, the more you learn about the world, the more you understand Victor Laszlo, the more you realize maybe he's also the hero of the movie. That's not discounting Bogey at all. They're both on a pedestal. This is a perfect film for Warner Brothers because to go to your first question, They were the studio that was never afraid to be political. And when you look at some of the very first war movies, they did Confession of a Nazi Spy. They did Black Legion. I mean, they were front and center, gloves off with anti-authoritarianism early on. 
But the first war movie, something like Desperate Journey, is very popcorn-y. It's very simplistic. None of the good guys really get hurt. And at the end, they beat the crap out of the Nazis and everything's good. And it's this kind of hoorah movie. And Casablanca is this turning point where it, it's got some of the romance, but it also has, as we've talked about at length already, there's that reality that is in this movie that just hits so hard. And Warner Brothers, when you fast forward a couple of years, is something like Objective Burma with Errol Flynn. Like at the end of that movie, Errol Flynn, as this platoon commander, is congratulated for winning his objective, but it's not a happy ending. He hands his commander all the dog tags and says, here's the cost. Have you joined Ticklish Biz's Patreon? You should, just like Ali Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hoppy, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Jacob Haller, Jonathan Watkins, Kimma, Krista Painter, Mick F., and Rachel Clark. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive exclusive membership items, and even guests on an episode. You also get access to bonus features like Based on a True Podcast, Doubled Features, and our new limited series, But Have You Read That? It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. Warner Brothers is also not afraid to look at their surroundings and read the room and by 1944 or 45 and realize that every community has been touched by this war also in a really bad way. Neighbors have lost people, families have lost their sons and friends. They're reflecting very much of the moment stuff. Casablanca is a turning point in that because we get that romance and then that hard edge that we know well from Warner Brothers. I watched the trailer for this, the original trailer from 1942. I have to ask a question. I wish we had Eddie Muller on to help us answer this, but I was really surprised to watch the trailer and see how heavily it was advertised as a noir film. It describes Bogey as the most dangerous man in the most dangerous place where every kiss becomes your last. It's very noirish. So it begs the question, is Casablanca noir? I wonder if that comes from the star building of Bogart coming off of Maltese Falcon and High Sierra. I wonder if they just thought, well, if this is where we're building, that's a really good question, though. There's components there. Others can weigh in. First thing I thought of was the trajectory of Bogie's star image. I definitely think that's part of it, of just like, if you can't tell him apart from any of the other characters he's ever played, why not try him in this one? But so much of noir is cynicism about whether or not apprehending the bad guy will actually make a difference in whether or not life gets better for the people of whatever mysterious city that they're in. For this, him walking around going, I lost when I ran guns to Ethiopia. I lost when I was trying to help Spain overthrow their fascist leader. I lost and I lost and I lost and I lost. So why should I try again? It's not a noir mystery. But it's a noir feeling. Is it even worthwhile to try to stop horrible people from doing horrible things in this world that we live in? Or should I just go and make bank playing roulette for people who are desperate? I see it. Although the ending is not very noir. But on a certain level, I guess we have a doomed protagonist because he's going to live without this love. The, The final note of the movie is too cheery, maybe, for me to be full. Oh, I don't know if it's cheerful at all. You've got two men who walk into the fog basically saying we're going to go fight for the resistance because we have nothing to live for it's not really cheerful no, but it's nothing to live for I, I feel that ending is i feel like they feel energized to do yeah, that i'm totally with chris on this one i think it's an incredibly upbeat ending it's going to be a beautiful friendship that's not the exact point what they're looking forward to is this friendship and this act of taking part in the resistance and bear in mind the resistance up to this point is depicted 
in these very heroic, almost melodramatic terms. There is a romanticism there. I do definitely see that there are noir aspects to this film. Emily, you point out in particular the deep cynicism of Rick's character through a good chunk of the film. That's absolutely correct. But at the same time, there are too many things about it that are not, or rather that are conventionally heroic, that are very romantic. And I don't think you could quite call it a noir film as a result, even if it does have noir characteristics. I do love, Chris, that you brought up Maltese Falcon, because I think if anything, that is what this is building off of more than anything, because the letters of transit, they're the MacGuffin of this entire movie. The question of who has them, where are they going? Are they changing hands? I'm always shocked to realize that Emily, you brought up that this is a movie about paperwork, which I think is hilarious, but also that the Breen office, the Hayes Code at the time, only had a couple issues with some stray references to Claude Rains's Reno maybe trying to exchange sex for the letters of transit and some implied cursing to watch this movie. You're still surprised by how unhazy it is because even though it's not overtly stated that Reno is exchanging sex for the letters of transit that is heavily implied and I do love that Joy Page who plays the young woman who's trying to get the letters was actually Jack Warner's daughter which I think is a great little nepo baby fact it's pretty baldly stated that that is on the table that she could give up her virtue in a way and get what she's looking for. There's also the Hayes Code had the issue with you can't have Ilsa end up with Rick, can't have her leave her husband for another man. So the initial plan was to maybe kill off Laszlo. And they don't, even though you get this really romantic exchange between Rick and Ilsa at the end of this movie about how she's not going to regret it today, maybe not tomorrow, but later and for the rest of your life. There is a hint of ambiguity or ominousness to her going back with Laszlo because the love for him she has is still fragmented. We never really reconcile with the fact that she clearly still loves Rick. She does feel a love for Laszlo. It's unclear whether it's this romantic, passionate, fiery love or what, but... That's a woman that, you know what, I would love a sequel because I would just love to know, is she sitting at home being like, did I make the right decision? Ironically, if you're looking for another movie to watch that also has Claude Rains and Ingrid Bergman and is about who has what when, Notorious, great movie. Also a sly movie about slut shaming as well. It's great. Ingrid Bergman does not get her flowers. This was one of her most famous roles. But I don't think when we talk about this movie and we talk about Ingrid Bergman, I don't hear a lot of citation for her acting in this. It's just, she's so great. She's one half of Rick and Ilsa. And isn't it great how she works opposite Bogey? We know she's a great actress, but we never really break down the why of it all. Her performance here is a great example of it because she is just so authentic. You can look at certain classic film actresses and there is an air of artifice to it. We know we're watching a movie. Ingrid Bergman just has such a warmth and a vulnerability to her when she comes in and she asks Sam to play as time goes by. She's just so warm and genuine that you understand why Rick would fall in love with her, why Laszlo would fall in love with her. 
she's a genuinely good person. And I don't think the Epsteins get enough credit for the script of crafting verisimilitude and authenticity in a time period where films were supposed to give us this high fantasy. Well, and that's also true to Warner Brothers, that verisimilitude. That was their jam. And that's the house style at the time encouraged. The movie wouldn't work without Ingrid Bergman. She brings so much to it. I almost wonder if we don't talk as much about her because this is really what broke her out as a star in the United States, right? She was a star overseas. She's really, in a lot of ways, the heart of the movie. It's almost like everyone's almost playing off of her. She's the centerpiece. We were talking earlier, even down to all the smaller characters. They're all just so authentic. Peter Laurie early on, this desperation to get out. He lived that. He was a star in Germany and had to get the hell out because things were getting dicey. A lot of these characters, they were playing things they really knew. Ingrid Bergman, her character in this between men and the controversy there that would play out in her real life and in the public sphere as well in the not too distant future. She's absolutely fabulous in it. You would certainly can't discount her in any way. A shout out to Dooley Wilson, who plays Sam in this movie. Fun fact, I did not realize that the Warner theme was as time goes by until about three years ago. And then I felt really dumb. But when we're talking about this movie having a political bent, one line I was really thrown by that I didn't notice, and they brought it up in the trailer as well, is that sequence with Sidney Greenstreet and Humphrey Bogart where Ferrari is asking if he can buy Sam to work in his club. And Rick says, we don't buy and sell people. It's a line that has bittersweet connotations, right? Because, yes, by the 1940s, slavery is over. But as we know, we're still seeing huge exorbitant examples of racism in America. In the military, there were issues there with Black soldiers. And then... In filmdom, Dooley Wilson has such a great, great role in this movie, but Black actors are still heavily marginalized, and they would be up until the 1970s. There's this real bitter irony, almost, that you're like, yeah, Rick is a guy that says we don't allow slavery anymore. We're the land of the free. Oh, but also, Hollywood is still part of the problem. It goes to show the complexities of one movie. If Casablanca represents the quintessential classic old Hollywood film, it highlights the strengths as well as the flaws in real equal measure. And I still applaud it for that. I still think if this is the gold standard of old Hollywood, it really does encapsulate both why we love it and why we contextualize it and why we talk about why things don't work. And it's all bound up in just one line that, again, most audiences, maybe in 1942, didn't even realize that, and most audiences watching it today probably don't look at it that way. I was wondering if I could circle it back to Ingrid really quickly, because one of the things that I really, really love about her in this movie, and also in Notorious, which you brought up, is that she's really tall. In real life, she's really tall. (laughs) To watch her often, in every movie that she's in, and I think a lot of this had to do with her presence on screen, stand eye to eye with all the men that she's on screen with, really does an interesting thing that you don't see a lot, especially in movies nowadays, where every actress is five foot nothing, 45 pounds. And she's what I like to call a full-size human being. And so she has this presence on screen that a lot of song and dance girls maybe not have because they're itty bitty 
little people. It's nice to see them cast a very tall woman in the central figurehead position. And something that I think works really, really well in this when a statement is made and every man in the room turns to look at her to see what they're supposed to do in this situation. She's really the person making all of the decisions. And that's a good point too. The best way to probably describe her entire life and career might just be authentic. This isn't someone who tried to cater to the wills of studio bosses or to the mores of the day or what anyone's going to accept. And that comes through in her acting as well. She holds her own in a room full of dudes. There's no question of her confidence in herself, or even if she's equivocating, there's still a power there that she translates through the screen that is really admirable and really brings her character to life and the movie to life in a lot of ways. And this is a bit unrelated, but it does testify to the just incredibly international cast of the film. Conrad Veidt, who plays Major Strasser, is the man who got Paul Henrod out of Nazi Germany. I don't know if you guys knew that he was responsible for doing that. It's what an incredible twist of fate to have him be the man who's trying to bring him back to Nazi Germany in this film. The Nazi element of this movie is weird because we're saying they're Nazis, so we're not hiding it. But there is this element of unclear definitions of what Nazi Germany means because it's 1942. And like Andrew said, it's easy to look at it in hindsight and say what we know now. But Conrad Veidt. For me, he's the man who laughs from the silent era. He's always had this air of intimidation. The Nazis just are this overarching force represented by one guy for the most part in this movie. It doesn't have the overt presence that it would come to have later on. If anything, that's why most people remember Claude Rains more than they remember Conrad Veidt, because Renault is more of a presence that we understand the corrupt cop. That's a trope that just never gets old. But what's great about Claude Rains in this movie is how the script allows him to just unrepentantly be this gray character where you don't really understand his motivations. We all know the meme where he's like, I'm shocked that gambling is going on here, which has now become even more in use with 2023. I love that he is this character that pretty much says, I am a terrible human being, but I'm also an opportunist. So I'm going to do what benefits me, but it might also benefit you. And I don't think that in the world of old Hollywood, where the Hayes Code required that bad guys always get their comeuppance, we don't get a lot of characters like Reno. The end of the movie is him and Rick famously, as we all mentioned, going out into the fog. He doesn't die at the end. He doesn't get gunned down. This is a guy that's been causing problems the entire movie. And he's allowed to go off into the sunset with Rick. He's almost like, to use a modern day reference, he's the Loki of this movie. This trickster character in a way that you're not really sure if he's good or bad. But you're so charmed by the Claude Rains of it all that you allow yourself to be drawn in. And I'm glad you mentioned the code, too, because there's something, you know, Warner Brothers notoriously always fought the code, probably more so than any other studio. But one of the tricky rules was, I mean, you mentioned some of the code objections over sexuality and stuff. One of the other things that was tricky to navigate, especially once we got into the war, is that one of the strictures of the code was that a movie could not ridicule another country or another religion. So going after Nazi Germany 
you know, like Confessions of a Nazi Spy was a direct violation of the production code. That might have been something that obviously once we're in the war and we're actually fighting the Nazis, you can go after it. But I wonder if why some of these movies like Casablanca operate in this gray area, if there's still some effect of that enforcement on some level where they're still trying to push it only so far because they don't want to have any issues. I know that was something that was at play with a lot of these movies. Claude Rains in the 1940s had just played so many different characters up until that point. You'd be hard-pressed to find a guy who's played the Invisible Man, the loving father of four hot girls and four daughters in this very short amount of time. Claude Rains, just awesome. You mentioned Notorious, right? And so nasty in that movie. I know that they've tried to find ways to continue Casablanca in various things. I mentioned that Howard Hawks' To Have and Have Not is pretty much a Casablanca ripoff. They tried to do a TV series. They tried to do a Casablanca TV series in the 80s or something. It was a one pilot thing. It was not ever something that was done with any type of seriousness. Per IMDb, they did want to make a sequel at Warner Brothers. They planned one called Brazzaville, which is a free French city that they were going to look into, but they never produced it. Supposedly, there was an article at the time that mentioned that Bogart and Greenstreet would play those same characters in a film with Geraldine Fitzgerald. Nothing ever came of it. Francois Truffaut supposedly was offered the ability to remake the film in the 70s. Did not want to do that. There have been movies that have tried similar to Casablanca. In 2008, supposedly Madonna wanted to make a remake set in Iraq, which, ooh, okay, that would have been weird. That would have been a movie to unpack, yes. There was a very short-lived series based on Casablanca. There were two attempts. The first was called, appropriately enough, Casablanca. It aired on ABC as part of Warner Brothers Presents from 1955 to 1956. It was kind of based on Casablanca. It was a Cold War espionage program that starred Charles McGraw as Rick. And then the second one was actually broadcast on NBC in 1983, with David Soul as Rick, and they canceled it after three weeks. So Oof. unfortunately, Casablanca, not a thing you can remake. And honestly, you probably should. Yeah, the film for me that really is perhaps the most Casablanca spinoff-esque is one of the films that Bogart worked on almost immediately after Casablanca called Sahara. It's set in Axis-occupied North Africa. He's this American soldier who is leading a group of multinational allied freedom fighters, and they got to fight the Nazis. It's much more comic booky, kind of cartoony. But in that film, watching it, you really get a sense for just how well Casablanca is every bit as propagandistic as Sahara is, but Casablanca's incredible craftsmanship from everybody who worked in it. You see it there in that contrast, most starkly, just how good Casablanca really is. If you are looking for weird movies that have liberally stolen from Casablanca, the Mission Impossible series, the most recent two, they have a character named Ilsa, played fabulously by Rebecca Ferguson, very, very Casablanca-y. The one movie is even set in Casablanca at one point. Rebecca Ferguson is Swedish as well, isn't she? She, That she is. If she ever wanted to play Ingrid Bergman in a biopic, I would support this. But my favorite is it a Casablanca ripoff, is the 1996 Pamela Anderson movie Barb Wire. I am not kidding. Roger Ebert put in his review of the movie that it is essentially Casablanca 
with Pam Anderson in it. So if you've ever been interested in what that would look like, you should watch that movie. Maybe one day we'll do a double features episode discussing that and Casablanca in the same sentence. We did try to explain the concept of barbed wire to our lovely co-host who is not here, Samantha, who is 25 and I think was probably born after the movie came out. She stared at us aghast. And frankly, you've made very good points. So I have to go and resurrect that on VHS, I assume, in order yeah, to I'm, I'm looking now. It. It's not mm-hmm. streaming, but I remember seeing it in the 90s. And on IMDb, it has a lofty 3.5. Yeah. Sheesh. Knocking so it out of the park. One of those one. so bad yeah, it's good uh... kind of movies. Look to point out just how incredibly depressed I was to learn how many people who had to flee Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe went on to Hollywood, and then were typecast as Nazis for the rest of their careers. It's one of the most depressing things I've ever heard in my life. I'm really happy that they got to work and had careers, but it's just so sad. It's beyond words depressing to learn that that's how your accent made people view you in a country that you led to to save your life and your family. And I know that's a real Debbie Downer thing to point out, but man, that's awful. You almost wonder if yeah. you, could you think of like the Hattie McDaniel response. Like I'd rather play a servant in a movie and make a bunch of money than be one in real life. But it's like, yes, but just like yeah. you're saying, it's like, but this still sucks, though. It's still really unfortunate because you're so much more than this. Yeah. That, I mean, like good... these people murdered your family. Yeah. Right. The poor gentleman who plays the Maitre D and Ricks, he lost most of his family. And it's just like, oh, that that's yeah, just like, brutal and awful. Yeah, I'm like sorry. I said, you know, Michael Curtiz lost most of his family in the Holocaust. Really depressing yeah. spin note that I had to put in towards the end of this. Really puts a lot of it into perspective. The 40s and the 50s and war propaganda films after the fact. One thing that can maybe elevate that very real, obviously sad thought is that there's a really good book that came out a couple years ago called The Sun and Her Stars about Salka Virtal, who was a writer and an actress who came to Hollywood. And then she came to Hollywood before everything really hit the fan in Europe. And a lot of these stars, writers all over the place working in Hollywood, their first stop was her house. And she was this support. She created this support system for these displaced families that came to work in the industry. So while it's simultaneously this really sad story, because these people are freaking out because they don't know, can't just text someone overseas and be like, hey, are you still alive? They don't know for months and months on end. So it's a really cool story of you know something uplifting during this incredibly difficult time. Donna Rifkind is the author, Sun and Her Stars, recommendation. I kind of a response to this that I want to say to close out on is that at the same time, though, there is something really touching, wonderful about the fact that you have all of these people coming together who are refugees and victims of Nazi tyranny making this film. And a film that nearly a century later, we are talking about in these reverential world historical terms. They got to have the last laugh. Let us know your thoughts on Casablanca, Ingrid Bergman, barbed wire, any of it. You can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or send it to us on all social media platforms. We're on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz and all other platforms at ticklishbiz. I'd like to thank Chris Yogers, author of The Warner Brothers, for joining us today. Chris, where can fans find you online? Feel free to shout out anything you have coming up. Twitter or whatever it's called these days, at Chris Yogerst website, chrisyogerst.com. Andrew, we thank you so much as well for wanting to hang out with us. 
No, it's my pleasure. That's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews matter. We love to read them. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. You can follow us, as I mentioned, on all social media platforms. You can follow me directly at therap.com or I am on all social media at Kristen Lopez 88. Emily Edwards, where are you online? I am across all social media platforms at Ms. Emily Edwards. And you can also find me on my personal website at MsEmilyEdwards.com. You'll find links to books, newsletter stuff, and everything I'm supposed to do to market myself as a podcaster and author. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our mini series on literary adaptations, starting with Anna Karenina. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Both of our books are out now wherever you get books. We will be back on October 11th with a new episode all about All About Eve. Till then.